This is a podcast from the Poetry Society. It sounds rather pompous, but the thing that I can get closest to as a description is like bearing witness. And bearing witness always sounds as if you're witnessing something rather terrible or rather dramatic. But I would like to think we could bear witness to the tiniest. Hi, Salima. Can you hear me all right? I'm Emily Berry, editor of the Poetry Review. My guest today is Salima Hill. We published a group of poems by Salima in the winter 2020 issue of the Review, all of which will appear in her forthcoming collection, Men Who Feed Pigeons, due from Blood Axe later this year. Salima's recent, brilliantly titled collections include I May Be Stupid But I'm Not That Stupid, The Magnitude of My Sublime Existence, Splash Like Jesus, and the pamphlet Fridge, which came out last year from the Rialto. Salima is not online, which presented some challenges in our pandemic times, but I reached her by phone at her home in Dorset. First of all, thank you so much for agreeing to come on the podcast. Um, I'm really happy to have the chance to talk to you. It'd be great okay, to hear those poems. Okay. I think the poems are from my next collection. It all seems a very long time ago, and I can't remember what men they're all talking about, because I've moved on to another book now. So I hope your questions won't be too taxing for me, but I'm happy to read them anyway. Well, there's no pressure to answer you can answer I know. questions I know. with a completely different answer, however you wish. And the book is going to be called The Men Who Feed Pigeons? Men Who Feed Pigeons, yes. Good. I wanted to call it Men Who Wear Shorts, and now I really regret that I didn't call it that. But I thought that would generate rather a lot of questions about feminism and stuff, and I didn't want to use the word men, so I tried to think of another title, and then it still got men in the title, so that's the way it is. The title is about, uh, do you know the film Closely Observed Trains? Well, the text of that is by someone called, I don't know how to pronounce it, Bo Humil Harau, H-R-A-B-A-L. He's a writer who I love, and he fell to his death from a hotel balcony while apparently feeding the pigeons. And they always, always, always say that phrase, apparently. I always think that's interesting and sad. It always says he fell to his death while apparently feeding the pigeons. And the books are called Closely Observed Trains and also Dancing Lessons for, for the Advanced in Age. And I served the King of England and I really like them. So it was because it seems so touching that a man should fall from his death while feeding pigeons, which I do a lot of. So that's why it's called that. But my next book that I'm working on has got the working title, Men Who Wear Shorts. So I'm in a bit of a muddle. You could do a whole series I of men who do this or that. But the whole point of it was that I'm trying to avoid the word men in titles. Mm, there's so no escaping them, unfortunately. Muddle. Anyway, I'm really scared you're going to ask me about feminism. But in the meantime, did you want me to just crack on and read yeah, just maybe read down to an including bucket, please. And including bucket, please, okay. It's your bucket list, ha-ha. Okay. 
standing on his doorstep. The goose with yellow legs, like yellow egg yolks, standing on his doorstep. Only me dreaming I'm a goose because a goose hasn't got a clue what it's doing. The beautiful man whose name I can't pronounce. I can, but it's so beautiful I don't. I prefer to think it's unpronounceable, to go to bed and think of him as fruit, glimpsed at night by someone who is lost, who walks for many days, weighed down by maps and dictionaries and old pronunciation guides until she's so exhausted and confused she can't pronounce the name of where she's going to, never mind the name of the fruit, into whose fat cheeks she dreams she's biting. A happy-looking man. A happy-looking man for a change. And that's what's made me come here in the first place. I'm fed up with the men in my life who seem to think happiness is irrelevant. Jelly. Just as he, to me, seems very hairy, I, to him, must seem very shiny. Like a jelly shining on a plate. Bucket. He sits beside me like an old bucket someone's put beside a fire alarm. Thank you so much. You. That was great. It's really nice to hear the poems read. I always uh, think I sound like Maggie Thatcher. <laughs> <laughs> you might hear my voice on the like an answer phone message on someone's phone. <laughs> so I much prefer to be read by someone else. I love to hear them read by someone else because then they don't seem like mine anymore. I always try to disown them. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, for me, hearing you read them is perfect because the intonation is all in the right place, it seems to me. Um, (laughs) Yes, yes, of course, of course. It's just, as I say, I just, I find it really hard to own them. And also I was thinking I don't like, When you read about people's Debbie novelists, they always say, oh, I wanted to write the book that I wanted to read myself. And I always think, oh, my God, I do not write the books that I want to read. I don't want to read them, and I don't want anyone else to read them. So I'm in a muddle about that. I so love my readers, but just as long as they're strangers. I always kind of trot out this D.W. Winnicott quote, and he said something like, an artist is someone who's caught between the desire to hide and the desire to be out there. Um, Yeah, exactly. Yes, I know that. And it's great. Exactly. And why, why, why do we do it? I don't know. I also came across last week Mark Twain, who said the purpose of art is to alleviate shame. I thought that was quite interesting. Well, I was sort of thinking... It doesn't alleviate shame, by the way, but... (laughs) It doesn't. Well, not at all in my case. Someone sent me um, a thesis they'd written about my work, and it was about shame. So that's what made me pick up on Mark Twain's quote, and I thought that was really interesting. She hadn't interviewed me before she wrote it, but that was just her angle, and I thought it was really interesting that that was her angle. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of women poets that I know who are big fans of your work have definitely picked up on that angle. Sophie Collins wrote a book that was published a few years ago called Small White Monkeys, which is about shame in a lot of ways. And she includes a a sort of 
analysis of uh, your poem Prawns de Joe, talking about shame in relation to that and... That's so funny. I mean, of course, I'm totally unaware of it when I'm working. And also, what am I ashamed of? (laughs) Well, it seems to be something to do with maybe just the very state of being embodied and kind of experiencing painful emotions, femininity and what it's like to be a sort of embodied female body in this world. But why should it be shame? I think that I agree with critics say it's shame but I as I say I don't know what I'm ashamed of but it's hard it's hard enough being a woman yeah without having to speak for other women talking of feminism that is I wouldn't feel I could do that Julia Copas was wanting to interview me about my Asperger's which I've never brought up in an interview before so I'm practicing now and thinking that maybe I certainly am aware of that stigma so that's a strand a kind of news strand that I'm coming out with, as it were. It's really hard for me to talk about because it's only recently, as I say, that I've, as it were, come out because I only had my official diagnosis or I've only told people about my diagnosis since I left working at universities because universities don't really like it. Mm. Although, actually, that's where, in the groves of academia, where all the autistic people hang out. But when I was um, at university, I went to, I was in the psychiatric hospital for a long time. And when I came out and back home into the real world, it was never to be mentioned. So it's taken me 50 years to realize that I can mention it. It was very strange because, as you can imagine, it was such a traumatic event for me personally, but such a private event, my time in the hospital. Of course. I mean, I think one thing about your work that is really powerful is that it, I think it's there's a kind of permission giving to other people who've had these experiences or versions of that experience to feel seen as in the contemporary parlance and seen people are always saying oh i feel seen by this as in oh, seen I, thought, I wasn't sure if you said keen or seen oh. <laughs> seen seen yes. s-e-e-n but i don't want to be seen no no i mean your readers feel seen yes, as in exactly that's what's so strange it's wonderful for my readers to feel seen and i want them to to feel seen but it's so ironic that i myself find it so difficult I don't think you're alone in that as a writer no. at all. And as actually, a fellowship is a fellowship of the poets and the readers, which is a wonderful fellowship. And I suppose that's what we're reaching out to each other as, as readers and writers. But I find it hard to talk about. Talking of, um, talking of publishing and not publishing, how can I complain when I nevertheless go ahead and publish? So therefore I don't feel I've got a leg to stand on, as it were. You're very prolific, I would say. Yes. I am. Never stop. That was another thing. Someone was saying that I recommend to students to cut, and I just wanted to clarify that. And my position is is not that I go and say cut, 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 which I think sounds so negative and aggressive and violent and unloving. But what I would say is that my process is to loosen Loosen, loosen, and then I tighten, tighten, tighten. So it's rather like loosening your hair if you've got long hair. Like I want 
my work to be as loose as I possibly can and spread it as far as it can and as deep as it can. And then I tighten. So like the work in, that I've just been reading, each of them has got couplets, two-line couplets, and they're only, most of them maybe only four to ten lines. But that is reduced by about eight or nine times longer or more. Yeah, because I wanted to ask you about your writing process, like say a poem like the first one you read, Standing, Standing on, his, on doorstep. his Doorstep. I was rereading that this morning and just marvelling at how much I was getting out of it on a whatever it would be, like 20th reading, because I've read them so many... Oh my God, Emily, shut up! Well, I mean, I mean, as a, not purely as a kind of fan thing, but just in the editing process, one has yeah, to... Yeah, no, I can, no, I understand, Emily. I understand, <laughs> um, I love it, but... I love it that you're out there responding. It's it's wonderful. But I was just noticing for the first time the repetition of yellow in the first line, the yeah. yellow legs like yellow egg yolks. It's such yeah. a beautiful, almost like a tongue twister. Yes, um, exactly. Yellow egg yolks is so much the texture of the egg yolks. It's a tongue twister. It's lovely. Yes, yeah, sorry, what were you going to say? Well, I was going to say one, A, that it made me think of that endlessly mentioned poem, the William Carlos Williams, uh, So Much Depends Upon a Red Wheelbarrow, oh, yeah. because of the kind of colours, there's just the like really strong primary colours of the poem, because you do have this kind of amazing skill for writing these very short poems, two lines sometimes, or four in this case. So are you saying that that poem has come out of something much bigger and you've and some people might think, well, hang on a minute, if you've been working on it for weeks, how come you've still got two yellows and three times the word goose? You know. But it works like perfectly. doorstep, doing the deeds. I think it's like writing also a very short tune. You would probably sympathise and understand what I'm trying to say, that you get the note, it's the sound and the sense, making a note which resonates across and around but to go back to when I was saying about privacy, I remembered yesterday that I used to live near a holiday cottage and somebody came to the door with a book of mine and asked me to sign it. And I was already startled and I said, hey, how do you know I'm here and, and what's going on? And they said that in the holiday cottage where they were staying, there was a book of, about me or something to do with the photo of me or something. And so after they'd gone, I had the key because in case of the emergency, the landlord gave me a key. So I went and I stole the book and I replaced it with a book of photographs of the Dorset Jurassic Coast. Wonderful. So I apologise if the landlady is reading this, but I stole her book. Well, I think that seems a reasonable... Do you mean that they had a thing saying, oh, by the way, the poet Selima Hill lives next door? No, but it was like a photograph and there was and it was in the books with local tourist attraction you know little <laughs> shelf in the holiday <laughs> well i think it was flagged up in that somewhere i don't know oh my god <laughs> so i'm allowed to steal on those grounds totally i would say going back to the goose i wanted to ask you about animals because animals appear so much in your work and with great kind of tenderness and empathy, but they're often associated with, I guess, sort of states of abjection or sort of uncomfortable states in some way. I just, yeah, I wondered what 
what that's all about are you a big animal lover how do sort of animals <laughs> come into uh, your life nice one maybe it's a way of follow on from what you're saying about being embodied maybe it's a way of talking about bodies without talking about other men and women and looking back to my childhood i was brought up some of the time on the farm and i used to sit in the tractor cabin is it called a cabin on the tractor with the farmer mm. and he was the man who i trusted the only man i loved and i trusted and a different kind of man from the men in my life and i used to spend all day perched up behind him with his dog and his cows i suppose that was the best memories of my childhood so maybe it was to do with that i felt very very safe and i guess being on farms at an early age you would have had a lot of contact with animals in kind of both joyous and sort of disturbing forms exactly exactly you're so right exactly so you could hear you could hear them also being taken away in lorries and mooing and sad things and Mm. i could never quite understand how the farmer could do that that puzzled me because you could hear them mooing and they sounded so sad when the cars were separated But also, what I didn't know at the time, there was a fire at that farm where I was burnt as a child, and he he was feeding the cattle, and he rescued me from the upstairs window. He threw a ladder against the door and pulled me out of my burning cot, so it was him that saved my life, but I didn't know until later. So he and I had a really special bond, which is nice. My family didn't have animals. And all my life, I used to think, how can adults not want a dog? And when I grow up, that's the first thing I'm going to do, and it was. <laughs> <laughs> do you have pets now? Yes. What are their names? Or is that secret? Yeah. Okay, fair enough. You're so right, Emily. You're so intuitive. <laughs> can we know what species they are, at least? <laughs> A giant land snail and bees and dogs. Wow, a a giant land snail. I've never heard of anybody having that as a pet. That's amazing. Well, someone actually told me, so you're wrong, that Patricia Highsmith had them. I think maybe it was just garden snails. Does it just live in the garden or do you keep it in a... No, it's in an aquarium and it doesn't do anything all day. It's really nice, except (laughs) demolish bananas. So I can just... I come into the room and, and I think the first thing I think instead of thinking have I got any missed calls is where is he now? And he's moved about half a centimetre and it's so exciting. That sounds like a real um, important symbol for modern life to follow the it's example exactly. of the snail. No pet or what? <laughs> well, you mentioned about your awful childhood experience of being burnt in a fire, which I'd read in an interview that's online somewhere and you oh, okay. you were in hospital for a while as a baby and I just wondered because your latest pamphlet which I've been reading and really enjoying Fridge is dedicated to two different hospitals and sort of seems yes. to speak a bit about kind of different people being in different kinds of hospitals and I also found this I think it must be an interview from a very long time ago maybe the 80s where you were speaking with a registrar at the Maudsley about the benefits of having writers in psychiatric units sort of working with patients. And um, 
you'd said a great comment, which was, I can see an analogy between being a writer and being a psychiatric patient. I just wondered if there's something about the sort of world of the hospital context that is somehow is a useful space for a writer or for poems. I think you can let go of your identity in the world that you're trying to be, like a thin woman or a nice woman or something like that. I was so happy in the hospital in a funny sort of way between trying to commit suicide. It was kind of nice Mm. because you reinvent yourself. Although you're in an institution, you're free. And I felt the same. I went to boarding school and I felt the same. I preferred being at boarding school than at home. My parents are dead now. And so are my sisters and brothers. So again, I feel free to say things that I would never have said before. Another thing I was going to ask you that you mentioned in one of these interviews was about kind of in relation to the talking about autobiographical subjects that you said, I, I do not want to hurt anyone art is not an excuse for hurting anyone. I do have the sense that a lot of writers and artists want to feel that the pursuit of truth or whatever that is trumps the worry of... Exactly, exactly, um, Emily. You're so, so acute. I completely agree with you. You've done your homework. (laughs) But I agree with you so much. Come on. I mean, look at Robert Lowell and his wife and stuff like that. I'm just not going there. Also very, very aware that I have, as a writer, any writer has, it's a monologue. You're on your platform and it's a monologue and no one can interrupt you and you can just go moaning on. And it's not a dialogue. And I feel very aware that that's, in my extreme moments, bad, unhealthy, not helpful, selfish, self-indulgent. All those things I feel when I'm writing. I'm on my own. And I'm not listening. I'm not listening. Listening to, uh, at one level, obviously, but they don't have a say. If I want to, which I never would write about my children, not when they're alive, because what can they say? Nothing. Do you feel that, I mean, because of course there's then the question of that some people feel absolutely compelled to write about something because of the way in which it's sort of, I don't know. It's, I, I often think of this quote in a book by writer Haim Potok, which is about a sort of young Orthodox boy growing up wanting to be an artist. And in his oh, community, yeah. it's it's not sort of something that is, you know, allowed. Anyway, there's a quote in that book that says, art is a, a scream wanting to get out in a special way. Given that, is there a sort of way in which, I don't know, writing symbolically as you do a lot is a sort of a get-out clause that you can you can write about these things. Exactly. It's kind of encoded, isn't it? Everybody knows. You don't fool anybody. But at least you can you have a first-person protagonist and kind of pretend. You're not fooling anybody. Come on. But that's the only way that I can feel free to, to write. Yeah. To pretend that it's, it's fiction and to let let my readers come along beside me and pretend together yeah Mm. because you know you were saying before that writing kind of brings up all these these negative feelings of being self-indulgent but yeah actually there is a part of writing that is giving something to other people in terms of I mean of course you don't set out with that impact you you might or you might actually I mean 
Would you say that's something that's in your mind when you're writing? Certainly, like I've worked in prisons and hospitals, and I do realise there there are more people than just me in the world, and it's wonderful to talk to other poets or people who are wanting to to write. That meant a lot to me when I was, you know, working with people who wanted to express themselves. And I got a a letter from a, a student from, he said that he was my student at Arvon in 1980-something. So how long ago is that, like 40 years ago? He said that I, I know it's a bit embarrassing to quote what I'd said, but I thought it was quite cool. Apparently I'd said that a bunch of flowers is all very well, but poetry is like a knife. And I was wanting to be able to say that you can be tough, you know, and it's kind of can be scary. Whereas in my day-to-day life, my, for me, the most important thing is to appear to be nice to appear to be pretty. I was no good as a wife, no good as a wife. I was a failure as a wife. But I did love being a mother and I love being a grandmother. And does does your writing sort of come into your family life at all in the sense of like, do you sort of have an identity as a poet that you, or do you just kind of have that as a separate thing and you have your, your real life as it were? Yeah, which, that's such a good comment, Emily, because which is the real life? But yes, and I'm very aware that it's immature of me and unhealthy, but I've got two completely different lives running along side by side. All the pockets of all my coats are stuffed with notebooks and everywhere there's notebooks. And I have to dive into the loo to write notes. But on the surface, it's never to be mentioned. So I've perpetuated the thing that I was brought up with, unfortunately, but I have. Never to be mentioned. Do you think there might be a positive aspect to that in that it sort of guards the poetry in a way from... Because another question I wanted to ask you was... There's something about your poems that feels somehow a bit timeless. You don't mention any sort of markers of cultural time or history very... I mean, occasionally, say, you've got Belmondo in a Buddha souffle and um, (laughs) please can I have a man, but on the whole, you don't use proper nouns very often. It's a good point. I'd never really thought of that, except for Belmondo and Roger Federer, the tennis player. <laughs> but true, if you're calling me old-fashioned, it's true. I don't. I'd never thought of it consciously, but comment on the on the modern world. I'm not saying it's old-fashioned exactly. I mean, I suppose I don't know. Someone would have to look into whether people use proper nouns more commonly yeah, now. But yeah. um, it does give the work a kind of different tone somehow it kind of puts it in its own space I mean of course it's grounded in 20th century you know you've got telephones and things like that but I do see what you're saying it's a good good point I think I do write about things more than people perhaps and things sort of then take on they become anthropomorphized or they take on exactly that's what I was meaning exactly it's easier to write about things maybe I suppose I was also thinking that writing well, actually, thinking is, is like drawing. I grew up in a family of artists, so around me there were people drawing and painting all the time. I'm only writing as much as I'm not a, a drawer. That was my sort of the extent of my rebellion. Did you ever do any visual art yourself? I did, but the difference, Emily, was that my notebooks were secret, so I could say what I liked. But those in the family who were drawing... They would all be pinned up, or they were easy, and they'd say, oh, I love the way you did this, or that's 
that, and I couldn't handle that kind of exhibition. And I was, I, <laughs> when I was saying that thinking is like drawing, okay, I've also written that it looks like drowning. It looks so that, like what, sorry? It looks like drowning. Thinking is like drowning. I think I, I was thinking that because yesterday I gave somebody my iPad, 300 pounds worth of brand new iPad, because again, it felt like I was going down a rabbit hole and I would never come back. This, I'm trying to talk more about the modern world that you were living in. <laughs> but somebody gave it to me and I thought, why do I glare at it all the time? And I'm thinking it's because it's like a drowning or like a rabbit hole that I will go down and never be seen again. Or like my head will explode. So yeah. no, I haven't got an iPad or a computer or a smartphone or a car or a television or a radio or a husband. <laughs> yeah, I have got a husband, but he doesn't live in the same county. I like the way the husband is included alongside telephone and... I oh, know, it did sound a bit bad, I realise that. <laughs> I want to go back a bit to the you talking about writing being like drawing. I'm interested in this kind of link to art and you having grown up in a family of artists because I, I feel like your writing is quite painterly. The sort of short poems with these strong images sometimes feel like still lifes, like the jelly shining yeah. on its plate or the, just the old bucket sitting beside a fire alarm. Like Can a sort I of... Just say, Emily, that when you say painterly and visual and images, I would like to nudge that a little bit towards thinking a bit more sensory. I can so see like that. The jelly would be the colour of the jelly, but you also see the texture. Definitely. The smell, as well as the abstract thing of celebratory and childhood. Perhaps then what I was thinking of rather than still lives is more like um, sculpture because... Oh, That's I can actually see the physicality of the bucket. Um, That's better, yeah. And as we were sort of talking about at the beginning, the kind of embodiedness is quite a big thing in your work. And it sounds rather pompous, but the thing that I can get closest to as a description is like bearing witness. And bearing witness always sounds as if you're witnessing something rather terrible or rather dramatic. But I would like to think we could bear witness to the tiniest thing. Absolutely. I wanted to just also go back to your beginnings as a writer. You've published your first collection in Saying Hello at the Station in 1984, I think. So if I've done my sums correctly, you would have been sort of about 40 then. And I was just wondering what was going on before. Were you busy with family life? Did you Were you always writing or did you sort of get into it later on or...? Always, 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 always writing. I travelled and I worked with nursery-aged children, anything to avoid adults. What made you suddenly decide to start publishing? I remember I sent something up to London Review Books, I think it was, and then Andrew Motion, who was editor at Chatham Windows at that time, noticed it and wrote to me. I don't think I would have ever submitted I was going to say something to publication, but of course I did, because I sent it up to that magazine, so I don't know. But you do have to bear in mind that I come from a family not only of painters and writers, so it's quite sort of easy for me. 
you know, it wasn't a big deal. I was a very privileged, white, middle-class, highly educated person. So I suppose I felt part of the people who could send things up to London. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I was also, actually, I don't think she would mind because she's dead, but I don't know if you know the writer Jenny Disky. Yeah. Did you know that Jenny Disky was also in the hospital? So Jenny yes. and I were in the hospital together, and it was so moving. Oh, wow. We were together. Did you meet there, or you knew each other before? No, 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 we didn't. But the Mortimer Hospital had a very elite kind of ward, and we had looking back on it, rather experimental treatments, because it was like in the 60s. She was Doris Lessing's adopted daughter, and so I suppose Doris Lessing knew how to get her to the best place, and my family also knew. So I think that's how come we were both there. And there was about one or two other people who were kind of well-known subsequently who were there being experimented on. Yeah, and I was mute. I didn't, don't know if you know that, but I didn't talk. So Jenny was my spokesperson as well as everything else. Looking back on it, it's, it's so moving, really. It was traumatic in the extreme, but amazing that Jenny was there. For instance, once I had a toothache, and do you mind my talking like this? No, please. It's I... so nice to talk to you. you, you I feel that you're so understanding. <laughs> and I haven't told anyone, now Jenny's gone, but I had this toothache, and I was tactilely very defensive. Like, I didn't used to go to the canteen in the hospital to eat. I was always alone, because I didn't like to be touched. Mm. I had to go to the dentist. So they strapped me in a wheelchair, because I was just had a panic attack and would be hysterical if someone touched me. But And also I didn't talk, of course. So I remember Jenny coming with me and I was strapped in the wheelchair and we went in the lift from the Morsley Hospital across the road to the King's College Hospital, which was just across the road. And Jenny was with me, so that was such a nice memory. Because we were, um, you know, sections, so we weren't allowed out. So Jenny and I were allowed out and, and, and we had a nurse each and we crossed. Denmark Hill to the hospital together. This is irrelevant, but it's a happy memory. <laughs> yeah, well, it sounds like a sort of quite a key piece of literary history somehow. <laughs> but it was Jenny, yeah. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> she was very different from me because she was there because she was depressed and angry. And she hated, 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 hated every minute in hospital. So we had very, very different experiences. And we came from very different places and went on to very different places. It's making me think of a book I read a few years ago by a writer called Barbara Taylor about her experience of being in a psychiatric unit and how important it was to her recovery, sort of mourning the decline of these places because obviously now getting to sort of stay in... I think they have a term for it, something like concrete mother, long stays in hospital that a lot of people were able to have were are really very rare now, except for sort of very sort of extreme cases and that they were really helpful for a lot of people. I think they were worried, understandably, that we would become institutionalised and it made, day by day, the outside world got more scary, I suppose. But you've gone back into sort of psychiatric units to, as a writer, since. What sort of things would you do? Is it just kind of running workshops or...? Yeah. (laughs) My home. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So time is ticking on, and um, I'd like to ask you to read 
the rest of your poems, if you would. And then I might ask a sort of final question. And it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. So thank you. Can I just say that you said, what was I doing before I had children? What happened at that time? And I was just remembering that then I was, I moved after I stopped. How can I say? Anyway, there was a time when I was lived in South London and I never show people my work now, but then there was a few people, like there was Vicky Fever, Connie Bensley, Joe Shepcut, Ruth Padell, Wendy Cope, Fred Daguerre, Matthew Sweeney. It was just like a workshop in my house. I just remembered it when I thought, what can I say to you? I thought, well... I'm not saying that they were my influences, but they were my influences in as much as our identity as poets. Yeah. We were identifying ourselves as poets at that time. Sujata Batch was another one. Sujata, Connie, Vicky Fever, Joe Shepard, Mimi, Ruth Padell, Wendy Cope, and Fred Daguerre. I can't remember other, any other men besides Matthew. Well, this is a quite a roll call. It sounds like a, <laughs> uh, an enviable... I know, it's amazing. I was just thinking, gosh, when you write it all down and remember, I mean, it was just a very, you know, it wasn't a big deal, but it was meant a lot. And I what think... happened, because you say now you don't share your work ahead of of it being published, what sort of yeah. happened? Is that, is that quite a deliberate decision? No, not at all. I lived in London then, and all the culture was at my fingertips whereas now I'm much more isolated and I don't drive and also um, since I've been published I'm much more hopelessly much more reclusive I suppose you could say I don't like it I don't like it whereas at that time none of us were really published it was so nice although we wanted to be published that was so it was Confusing, isn't it, Emily? <laughs> it it really is. But, yes, um, it really is. <laughs> <laughs> but we should embrace it as part of the uh, the rich tapestry of our experience of life as poets. <laughs> <laughs> I love that word, embrace. While I'm talking to you, I'm looking at a picture my son did, and it says, with an image in his lettering, it says, I must embrace my beautiful face. <laughs> Well, that's good advice as well. It's such good advice, isn't it? <laughs> so, which, sorry, I'm... So, how about, yeah... The, the last one. The last poem, so from What Kind of a Woman Am I? And then down to the tank, please. All that whole page? Yeah, I think we need to get all of them. Oh, dear, I didn't, I didn't look at this page. On the contrary, I was looking um, at Kate, so I could read Kate Pops instead. <laughs> it's much more fun. I love that one over the page. Um, berries is for you, Emily. <laughs> oh, we haven't got there yet. What kind of a woman am I? What kind of a woman am I not to speak? Not to say words, to be struck dumb, to back away like a newborn toothpick that hasn't learnt to pick what it must pick. Chickens. Even when he's kind, I feel like chicken shit. Shut by chickens, out beheading worms. And when he isn't, like the headless worm. You either love a person or you don't. 
I step onto his shoes and cling on tight to my face between his knees. But the man shakes me off and kicks me in the head. I'm three years old. The man is my father. You either love a person or you don't. That's what I've been told, but it's not true. My horse hoof soup. His face is thin and grey like the soup that shudders at the sound of galloping horsemen. His throat is like the pines where the birds, flocks of tiny birds you can't see, are stabbing at the panic-stricken beetles. I try to take a sip, but it's impossible. Buried. Hello, Emily Berry. Berries. <laughs> His touch is like the touch of a bandage, soft but slightly sinister, all buried. And being touched makes her feel good, the way it feels good to feel helpless. The tank, he peers at me as if I'm in a tank. He marvels at my ugliness and stupor. I can be as ugly as I like. Better to be ugly than afraid. Thank you. Thank you so much. My cat has started scratching at the door, so she obviously was desperate to get in and listen to your reading poems. Uh-huh. Um, What's she called? Susie. Susie. She's a rescue cat, oh, so okay. that was her name already. Okay. So I just wanted to ask you one final question before we oh, okay. s- sadly wind up, which is just, um, who are your presiding spirits? which you can interpret any way you like. I can't. <laughs> it seems like, like I referred to the person who says, I say cut. It's like cutting people, all the other people and things out to choose. Mm, yeah, I understand. I won't choose. What about then if you just, if I just ask you, you don't have to say this is the best thing you've read or watched or done, but just something that you've, read or watched or done recently you don't even have to say whether you liked it just to give us a, a bit well, of a... I, I really am um, obsessed at the moment by Eastern European culture and literature Romanians especially and the work of Lashna Krasna Hawkeye is my current obsession and he worked with Belatar the film director so I suppose my aesthetic if you like is Belatar B-A-L-A-T-A-R-R. And I, I mentioned Bohemil Habao and also Pajmim Statovji, which is a one, as a writer, as people I'm reading at the moment. I was just thinking, Emily, quickly, that we haven't touched on political. And it just struck me when I said Romanian that it kind of ties in with what we were saying about encoding because I think the Romanian writers or the writers who've suffered politically under communism have had to learn to wriggle beneath the radar so that's probably why I feel so drawn to their writing possibly and why magic realism kind of happened there I don't know something to do with the fact that they're political and not political the sort of fabulism is that the right word yeah something like that I didn't want to use the word indirect because it's actually more direct in a way but it's kind of subversing it or encoding in some way so that the Romanian people 
because I, um, I did a British Council thing. That's why I speak of Romania more than other countries in East Europe. And the Romanian women writers that I was talking to, they just had to, like, slither and slip and dodge and nudge round. They couldn't actually come out with stuff. Yet they were really tough. And I thought maybe that's why I responded to their writing, perhaps. I don't know, because my childhood or my sense of being a woman feels like that and that I want to speak out, but I don't have the courage, or I don't know how to. Anyway, now I'm starting talking, but that's it, Susie time. <laughs> and I want to thank you terribly, um, Emily, for talking to me, because I really feel you understand what I'm saying. I do sometimes go mute even now, like when I got remarried, I did, and it was so bad and so frightening. Mm. But it very, very, very rarely happened. But when you rang the first time, I thought, oh, shit, supposing I go mute when I'm talking to you. But it's lovely to talk to you. And thank you very much for giving me courage for my work and for understanding me and listening to me. Oh, it's and my... being a woman poet. <laughs> I'm really just delighted to talk to you and um, so grateful that you have felt able to. And thank you for your time and your work, which... However you feel about it personally, I know means a lot to many, many people. So. Hey, well, I hope your work goes well too, Emily. And you did sound a bit scary right at the beginning because we were both nervous. Oh, uh, by the way, I don't want to see any proofs or anything. No, don't worry. Okay. We'll, um, you won't ha- have to hear a word about it again. Okay, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm free. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you so much, Salima. Bye-bye. Um, bye-bye. You too. You too. And the berries is definitely your poem. Well, I think I was a bit biased in selecting that one. <laughs> bye bye. Bye bye. Thank you. Bye. We hope you enjoyed listening to this Poetry Society podcast. To find out more about the Poetry Society and how you can become involved, visit poetrysociety.org.uk.